Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and next to me in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Sävos. How are you? I'm great. It's really hot in Sweden. I couldn't sleep, but otherwise fine. And today we have the honor of speaking with a legendary investor and author, Will Thorndike. He founded the private equity firm Husatonic Partners in 1994, which has since grown to more than $1 billion in AUM. And he is also currently running Compounding Labs and uh, the hedge fund Sun Mountain Partners and the new podcast, 50X. Will holds an MBA from the Stanford Graduate School of Business and an AB from Harvard College. And in 2012, Will's book, The Outsiders, was published. And the same year, Warren Buffett recommended it in his letter to shareholders. Why have we chosen the book, The Outsiders? I mean, this is a book that has gained huge traction among investors, which says something about its importance. It's one of the seminal books on capital allocation, and I think the subtitle of the book describes how, who these outsiders are, eight unconventional CEOs and their radically rational blueprint for success. The exceptional CEOs highlighted in the book are Tom Murphy at, of Capital Cities, Henry Singleton of Teledyne, Bill Anders of General Dynamics, John Malone of TCI, Catherine Graham of The Washington Post, Bill Stiritz of Ralston Perina, Dick Smith of General Cinema, and not least Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway. What is fascinating is that Thorndike and his team interviewed all of these CEOs who were alive at the time and, and also spoke to many other people in the companies and industries. For example, Charlie Munger. And how does the outsiders fit with our quality rating here at Red Eye? Capital allocation is a subcategory of our people rating and is one of the, if not the, one most important job for a CEO, in our opinion. I think capital allocation is like a toolkit consisting of different ways to raise and deploy capital, which is very similar to what we actually do as investors. And just as in investing, you must know which tool to use at what time. What the outsider CEOs are superior at is to know when to be aggressive in acquiring other companies, when to sell assets, when to buy back their own shares, and so on. And uh, this reminds me of what William Green wrote about in Richer, Wiser, Happier, about two examples of how the legendary investor Sir John Templeton mastered capital allocation. First, he bought 104 different stocks in the terrible climate in 1939 and made a lot of money as they recovered. And then he outperformed the market for, for decades. And eventually, 60 years later in 1999, Templeton sold short 84 overvalued dot-com stocks, making a fortune when the market crashed. The book The Outsiders was published in 2012, and to increase our understanding of superb capital allocation, we are truly grateful to have its author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Will Thorndike. So hello, Will, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thank you guys for having me on. Where are you today? Uh, I am in Bar Harbor, Maine. And can you tell our listeners a bit about how your passion for investing started? Let's see. So um, when I was just out of college, I um, took a vacation, family vacation, actually to to where I am now, you know, Acadia National Park um, in, in Maine, the state of Maine. And um, the weather up here is highly variable. In fact, as I you know, as we're we're speaking today, it's pouring rain outside. Although we've generally had great weather this summer, but I have that right out of, right out of college when I came up here, um, I had a week of fog and rain, uh, and so I had brought some books with me. But I finished the books, and um, I was looking for something else to read, and I pulled a book off a shelf in the house we were staying at up here called "The Money Masters" by John Train, um, which is a wonderful book. I would still highly recommend it, and I. I read it, um, sort of devoured it, and um, it's a profile, the book is a series of profiles of great investors. And the first chapter is on uh, Warren Buffett. And um, I was just immediately, I just sort of immediately knew that was something I was actively interested in doing. And I literally that week sent away for, you know, by mail, uh, I snail mail the, um, collection of letters, which, you know, the company had just started putting together. And this is, you know, late eighties and, um, was sent, sent those and read that and was sort of off to the races. So started in my early twenties. Nice. And if we go into your masterpiece, the outsiders, uh, you mentioned that you believe the best managers are, are not studied as much in, in business as successful people in, in medicine, law, politics, and, and sports. 
which is one reason you decided to write a book. Why do you think the methods of these outsiders are not studied as much? Well, I think there's a, a tendency in the um, a tendency in the business press to focus on an understandable uh, tendency to focus on the largest companies uh, or the companies that are growing the fastest. Um, but those attributes do not necessarily correlate with the best long-term returns for shareholders. So one of the things I was focused on in the book and and have been subsequently is sort of looking at the best records where the key metric is, you know, value creation, you know, for, for shareholders, um, not growth in the absolute size, you know, revenues, employees, um, market cap, enterprise value, but sort of per share, per share growth. Um, so that was sort of the, that, that's sort of the focus in the book. And I, and, and I don't think for understandable reasons that that isn't where the, the media has tended to, to focus. Yeah, and you mentioned Jack Welch uh, of uh, GE as, as the benchmark the, the managers in the book had to beat. Uh, and why do you, why do you think, uh, why did you did this, first of all, and, and why do you think management courses emphasize the, the lessons from, from Welch and not uh, from the outsiders? Well, Welch, I mean, until very recently, I mean, in the last three or four years where his you know, reputation has been pretty significantly tarnished as GE has run into you know, all kinds of troubles, many of which are the result of decisions made at the, the tail end of the Welch era. But prior to that, Welch was sort of a gold standard for CEO excellence. Um, and, you know, his record was really good. Um, you know, by the metric that I'm talking about, he, he, if you were a shareholder, of GE during Welch's 20-year tenure, you know, you had very good returns, you know, three three times the returns of the S&P during a period when the S&P performed very well. Um, so, you know, Welch, Welch did a good job for his shareholders. I mean, you can quibble with some of the ways he did that and what he left, sort of the hand he dealt his successors. But um, so I, I felt that that was sort of, and, and at the time the book came out, which is almost 10 years ago now, he was kind of clearly acknowledged as sort of a, a standard for CEO excellence. And so I felt it was important to have that as a was one of the two sort of performance criteria for inclusion in the book. You know, you had to beat Jack Welch. That was sort of the absolute test. And then the more significant test, honestly, was you had to meaningfully outperform the peer group. And this idea of duplicate bridge. And, and I think, you know, it, you know, the idea there is over long periods of time in an industry, everyone has dealt basically the same hand. And so if one company significantly outperforms all of its peers, it's worthy of study. And so the eight eight companies in the book fit that fit that profile. Definitely. And if we go into the people side a bit more, the eight CEOs you have in the book, they were all first time CEOs and often new to their industries. So why, why is this important? Yeah, that might be the most surprising finding in the book, honestly. So, you know, these CEOs came from a very wide variety of backgrounds. Um, you know, the you know, ranging from um, two high-level mathematicians to a, a widow, Catherine Graham, who'd been out of the workforce almost twenty years um, when she was tapped to become the CEO of the Washington Post company, to a former astronaut, to an investor who, you know never, never run a business of any type before. Um, so they had a variety of backgrounds, but they shared some interesting common traits. Um, and the most significant of those is all of them were first time CEOs. I think that's a really remarkable, maybe the most surprising finding in the whole book, um, as you just suggested. Um, and then personality wise, they fit, they, they fit a profile that was, is different than sort of the traditional, um, image of what a of the characteristics you use to describe CEOs. You know, they they were not charismatic, visionary uh types. They were um the, the words that I use to describe them are, you know, um flexible, opportunistic, pragmatic, analytical, rational, cool, you know, even even keeled. Um, and so they just, the, the profile was a little bit different. And I think it's this idea that if you're in an industry um, and you have that sort of thoughtful, analytical mindset and you think about how to 
you know, what the path is to create the most value over time, sometimes it leads to entirely different approaches than sort of the, the industry conventions that have built up over time, you know, might, might suggest. And that was the case, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty consistently across that group of eight CEOs. Yeah. Yeah. And the word you use uh, is iconoclastic, which means really criticizing or attacking cherished beliefs or institutions. So can you tell a bit more what conventional wisdom that they challenged? A little, I mean, it was a little bit, um, it was a little bit industry specific. So in, in each of those industries, there were sort of, um, you know, conventional practices and metrics. They, I, I guess the way to think about that is they, they were really good at evolving differentiated metrics that typically got at sort of the core cash economics of their businesses. They were laser focused on cash flow over reported earnings. Um, they were laser focused on tax minimization, which is obviously related to cash flow optimizing. Um, and and if those if you're focused on those things, it just tends to lead you in different directions than if you're focused on optimizing, you know, reported net income. Particularly in some of the industries they were in, where some of the inputs that can skew net income as a as a measure of free cash flow were, um, you know, some some of those inputs were 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 very um, you know very unusual. You know, as an example, you know, John Malone was in the cable television business in its early days where there were gigantic upfront capital expenditures to build cable systems after which there was very low maintenance capital expenditure and very strong and predictable free cash flows but it's just very hard for normal accounting math to kind of keep up with all that um which is you know why he evolved ebitda but that was a completely new idea uh, at the time so yeah and i do think that's one of the markers of this kind of mindset is you know the 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 metrics differentiated metrics that are that are cash flow based and focused on per share outcomes and you touched upon the tax minimization i think that was an interesting aspect in in the book and john malone as you mentioned as one example he grew his company's cash flow by 20 fold but he never paid any significant taxes so i mean this is great for shareholders but also too much tax planning it might also lead to a question about the integrity of the management and the durability of the returns. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, listen, I think the, um, I think it's important for the tax tail not to wag the dog, right? Is you know, the expression over here in the States. So in other words, um, if you looked at how Malone thought about taxes, he was, he was focused on minimizing taxes, but not at the expense of growing the, the value of the company or the experience for his customers and employees. You know, so he was, he was prudently making business decisions to grow the business in a way that was tax efficient because that tax efficiency allowed him to, to grow, grow more rapidly and uh, to provide opportunities for employees and also to take care of his, you know, to take care of his customers. So I think there are, you know, for sure taken to an extreme you know the pursuit of tax efficiency can lead you into you know decisions that are otherwise not economic and i think that's when you can get into trouble and of course everything has to be you know carefully vetted to be you know i mean the irs has to approve all of these things right so it's not you don't want it, none, none of these ceos went anywhere close to the line of you know um you know, bad behavior, behavior that would have gotten into trouble with the, the IRS or other regulatory bodies, but within the ground rules, which are very clearly laid out and constantly updated, they, you know, they, they, they were thoughtful about this. A lot of CEOs aren't thoughtful about it, right? So if you sort of think about it overly simplistically, if a CEO is managing to, you know, to, to net income alone, you know, that, that can lead them to, to pursue strategies that, are, are very tax inefficient um, and, and don't really benefit customers or employees or local communities or other, you know, other constituencies and stakeholders. So it's a nuanced, you know, it's a nuanced question in, in every case, I think. And another aspect you mentioned was that they focused a lot on cash flow. And uh, that's very important when you do a turnaround in a, in a business that is really under pressure. And that is one of the stories that I find the most fascinating in the book is the one about 
Bill Anders and the defense company General Dynamics. And he really made a successful turnaround in the early 90s. And this has been going on, as you describe in the book, for, for decades after with his successors. But uh, one thing he did was to sell off one of his best and most prestigious assets, which is really hard. So can you tell the story and your lessons from this? Yeah, so Bill Anders is, you know, he, he's a fascinating guy because he's the oldest of these CEOs. So he doesn't get the job at General Dynamics until he's 57 years old. Um, but he's still a first-time CEO. And actually, weirdly, he's still, he's kind of new to the private sector. So Bill Anders was an astronaut. He was a test pilot, a Navy test pilot. If you, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Right Stuff, but he was a test pilot right out of that tradition. He became an astronaut. He actually took the what the, the I think it's been voted the most historically significant photograph in the 20th century is the picture of the Earth from space. And Anders actually took that picture when he was on um, his Apollo his Apollo flight. So he had this very illustrious career in the public sector. He was then an ambassador, and he you know he, he held a bunch of roles. So he didn't make it into the private sector until he was in his mid 40s. So he's only been sort of 12 years in business, so to speak, by the time he gets the general dynamics job. So he's still got very fresh eyes, even though he's, you know, chronologically a little older. Um, I would argue still young since he's about my age at the time. But anyway, so uh, anyway, so he, he gets this job and he, he inherits that seat, CEO um, seat at general dynamics at a uniquely challenging time just after the Berlin Wall fell. And so U.S. defense policy and spending was basically turned completely upside down after a you know, 45-year uninterrupted run of increased defense budgets. It was, it was very unclear what we were going to spend defense dollars on going forward. We, we had a seemingly lower need for the large airplanes and aircraft carriers and you know, sort of the large platforms that were the, the spine of the the deterrent effort with the Soviet Union. So all the defense stocks got absolutely crushed and, it, and defense budgets were coming down. And, um, and basically, Andrews sort of looked at all that and he studied it and he basically concluded that he only wanted to be in businesses where he could be um, the number one or number two market share player. So going forward in this uncertain environment, that was really the only way to be sustainably successful and profitable. And um, so we began to shed business lines, which was virtually unheard of in the defense industry up to that point in time. So he began to sell business lines and he, um, he went to go in one of his leading, one of his um, most profitable business lines is that the general dynamics made the F-14, which was the, you know, the, the core fighter plane um, that was flown off of aircraft carriers. And he went to go see another head of a defense company and um, and was trying to buy that company's fighter business, which was a lower market share player. And the CEO of that company on the spot offered to buy General Dynamics F-14 business at a gigantic premium. And so Anders was faced with this dilemma of you know, here was the core of his strategy was to hang on to these leading market share businesses and build around them. And now someone was offering him what he knew was a, you know, a, a, an inflated price to sell it. And on top of that, he, he was emotionally attached to that business. Remember, he's a former test pilot. He actually loved flying these things. And so um, despite all that, he just, he thought about it, you know, he looked at the numbers and he's like, I, the right thing to do for shareholders is to sell. So he actually ended up selling that business to the um, the other defense company. So again, just hyper rational, uh, highly pragmatic decision, which you know I think very. And it's hard for CEOs psychologically to shrink their companies. You know, there's that that, that isn't the general you know sort of trend in in business, and um, for understandable reasons. And you know, it ties into incentives. You know, CEOs of larger companies get paid more. They get a little, they get more prestige. They, you know, there's a whole variety of reasons, sort of understandable human incentives to, to grow companies if you're in that seat. And Anders did the exact opposite. And this is the connection that I draw as an investor 
because then you hold a really premium company and then it gets super overvalued. The, the market is offering you this insane price and you are like, should I sell here or should I not? But then we can trim it. But for him, he really had to, it's like all or nothing. And it's also, he has to answer up to his shareholders and all the other people around him. And it's really a tough decision. Yeah, it's, it is a tough decision. I do think, I mean, I think that's a fair analogy, although I think, um, I think with the truly excellent company as an investor, you know, that's a really hard decision. That's a really hard decision. If you, in the you know recent podcast I was involved with, um, Rob Small was very eloquent on this topic when he talked about, you know, um, if he looked back on his mistakes as an investor, pretty much every time he sold a business only for price reasons, only because the price was high. When he looked back years later, that had been a mistake. That would be true for me personally and my investing experience as well. When I sold knowably great companies run by great people, even at exceptionally high prices, almost inevitably two, three, five years later, I, I wished I'd held them and the next owners did, did very well. But it's a nuanced, nuanced question. Yeah. Yeah. But as an investor, it's also, if you're not have a too big a portfolio in, in relation to the market cap, but then it's at least possible. It's hard psychologically to buy it back higher, but you can at least do it. I mean, for him to get buy back this business, that's really hard. Yeah, fair point. Yeah. And about general dynamics, uh, they used a performance-based bonus program, which I think Bill Anders implemented. Um, first of all, can you can you just describe it shortly? My interpretation was that it's it's like an like an option plan. That's connected. I mean, the the performance, uh, the, the bonus program is based on uh, on actually the stock price performance. Um, and I'm also curious to understand how you would structure a bonus program if you could 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 do it from scratch. Yeah, let's see. So the general dynamics program, I would have to review it in detail. But the the key elements of it were that it was it was tied. You know, he created a program where um, the incentives for his top management team members were tied to performance. And I believe you're right. I believe it was tied to stock market performance. Um, and the reason he did that is he was doing a bunch of, in addition to the operating things he was doing that were different and they were, and they were significant. Um, he was also aggressively implementing and, you know, highly unconventional capital allocation program, which included both repurchases and special dividends. And so in order to get his team on board with that, I, he wanted to create an incentive that was tied to the per share performance of the company, not just to, you know, the operating metrics that, you know, the cash flows and so forth. So, um, and I think the, um, you know, the, I think the key kind of principles in designing a compensation program, um, are that you, and the Transdime program, which we went into some depth in on the podcast is a good, very good example of this, but simplicity is very important. You know, there's a tendency to overcomplicate these plans. All you know, a bunch of analytically minded people like all of us get involved. And key thing is it has to, you know, it has to be fundamentally um, understandable to the, you know, to the to people who are participating in the program. I think you want as much of it as possible tied to performance, not time. Um, in the case of Transdime, it's a hundred percent, a hundred percent performance based. And then I think it's a question as to, okay, what is, you know, what are you going to, how do you define performance? And I think your options are, do you choose an operating metric, cash flows, revenues, margins, returns on tangible capital, whatever, or do you choose a, just tie it to the share price? Um, generally in public companies, there's some simplicity in tying it to the share price. Lots of things tend to sort of coalesce around that metric, but sometimes you want to give people a clear incentive over something they have more control over. That tends to be the question, you know, the question there. The Transdime plan is is tied entirely to share price performance. They sort of take the multiple expansion contraction risk out of the formula they use. Um, but it's a, it's a really good, simple example of, you know, how to think about intrinsic value. And it, it really, you know, they, it sort of, there's a sliding scale between a 10% IRR, nothing bests below a 10% IRR, and a 17.5% IRR where, where it fully vests. And then, you know, I think it's also really important in these programs that over time they pay out. 
you know, that there's, they, they create meaningful economics for the participants in the plan or else, you know, it's not, they're not going to have the incentive effects. They're not going to, they're not going to be effective as, as retention tools. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of, every case is different and, um, you know, there's nuance around that, but those are some of the principles. Great. And for our listeners, I think uh, all of you should check out uh, Will's uh, podcast, The 50X. So um, where, I mean, you go into real depth into into trans time in four episodes. And I, I guess there's much more to come there. Um, a topic I want to, to discuss, which I think is fascinating, and that's that's the subject of, of corporate culture. For example, Buffett has said that if, if you'd ask me to change a corporate cu- culture, I couldn't do it because it's so so difficult. But I think both uh, the example of, of Bill Anders of General Dynamics, but also Tom Murphy managed to do this at uh, ABC Network after Capital Cities bought them in, in 1986 in what was at the time the largest non-oil and gas transaction in business history, representing over 100% of Capital Cities' enterprise value. Are there any general lessons we can draw from this in terms of changing a corporate culture? Um, let's see. So I think... If I, you know, if I were sort of going to, you know, with with twenty twenty hindsight, ten years after the book came out, if I was going to sort of um, change anything, I think I would emphasize more the power of the cultures these CEOs built. Um, both, it, really, as it relates to attracting and retaining talent, so. The cultures were, as you just pointed out, they were very distinct, distinctive um, across these companies and and very powerful. And um, all of these companies had exceptionally high retention rates in the top, very top executive ranks, sort of off the charts high. Um, I think a lot of it came back to the to the fact that many of them, the majority of them were. Um, all of them were decentralized organizations and the majority of them were what I would call, you know, sort of extreme forms of decentralization, hard form decentralization. And there's just with that um, organizational design decision sort of comes a, a, a intertwined cultural ethos, you know, where, which has elements of humility and frugality and you know, sort of this idea that the, Corporate doesn't have the prestige and it doesn't have all the answers. Um, you know, the, the autonomy and the authority um, are, are with the, the GMs of the business units. Um, and there's sort of a, a whole culture that comes from that that is really powerful um, and very different than in centralized, more centralized organizations. And so I think that was a key thread. And, and cultures are extremely hard to change. They are very, very hard to change. And that, again, this is a topic that you know Nick Halley uh, talks about uh, on the podcast. But in acquired companies, as as, as Transdime has grown through acquisition over time, and Transdime and Capital Cities are very close, very philosophically, culturally, those are almost doppelgangers, very, very close cultures. Um, and um, but the, in terms of the acquired companies. They they've found over time it's just really hard to change those cultures, and they inevitably end up bringing in new management teams into the acquired companies over time, from uh, you know from from the core transdime you know mother mothership mother company. So um, yeah, culture is a very 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 powerful thing, and and um, you know was a was a, a less it should have been I think emphasized more in terms of its contribution to the returns across those eight companies. In, in terms of uh, centralization or decentralization, one thing that's not uh, decentralized in these companies seems to be the capital allocation role. Uh, and uh, there seems to be the case that, that these CEOs were primarily capital allocators and, and having a strong partner, a, a COO who ran operations. Do you think we can draw some lessons from, from that setup? I mean, thinking about that, CEOs may, mainly come come from an operations background and, and maybe don't maybe lack the expertise of, of capital allocation. Yeah, I think I mean I think one of the you know one of the the learnings for me anyway from the the work that went into the book is that 
and these really exceptional long-term CEOs are sort of part operator and part investor. But the really great CEOs need to have elements of both. Um, you know, the reality is in smaller companies, with many of the companies that I invest in, the operations piece is, you know, is preeminent, is most important. And in the early, you just because as you're a, as a smaller private company, you don't have lots of capital allocation alternatives, right? It's a, capital allocation is not rocket science in those companies. You're typically using your free cash flow to fund organic growth or inorganic growth, and you're paying down your debt, you're servicing your debt. And outside of that, there aren't lots of options. Um, as the companies grow in size, even if they stay private, their menu of options tends to widen. And the CEO ends up spending more of their time on capital allocation. But there's sort of an evolution in kind of time allocation between those two spheres over time that we've observed. And you know, these companies were all public companies in the book. They had to be for us to get the data. So that they had to be of a certain size. And at a certain size, you can afford to have kind of a more formal division in those roles. You can afford to have a COO type partner, and many of them did. That's one of the, that is one of the common threads across the you know, across the book. Um, although they themselves retained some involvement, particularly in the budgeting process process, which is the you know, key element in any you know any decentralized organization that the budgeting process is disproportionately important. Um, but anyway, I do I do think there's a you know, bit of a you know, bit of a blending and an evolution there. And uh, if we go go into the financial aspects of it, um, you describe that that you think um, free cash flow is a better metric than net in- income to evaluate a business, while the latter is more widely used, as as you mentioned before. Um, and I just I'm just curious to know because it it's so rational as as you describe it. But why do businesses still continue to focus on on net income? Is it is it because of accounting rules, or are there any other aspects of it? Well, I think I mean the, you know net income is designed to be a proxy for free cash flow, right? I mean, it, you know, it, it's doing its best to, to and it, in most cases, it's pretty, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good proxy for free cash flow. And so, um, but, but not in every case. And in some companies, you can see, you know, really wide dispersions between free cash flow and Net income, and so it's just important to kind of understand what the cost, and it, you know, it gets it gets down to the patterns of working capital, right? You know, how are the companies getting paid? If you get paid in advance, accounting has a really hard time figuring out what to do with that. Um, so businesses that get paid in advance often have you know interesting discrepancies between free cash flow and net income. You know, do they have inventories? What's the capex profile? What's the maintenance capex profile? I mean, there's a lot of detail that goes into really understanding like kind of cash realities in these businesses. Um, that's really the important thing to focus on. But I, I think, you know, listen, overall averaged across, you know, tens of thousands of public companies, net income does a pretty good job. Um, but, you know, that's, that there are lots of cases where, where it doesn't. Um, and for most of the companies in the book, that is true. Is that something you have uh, thought about more as an investor? I mean, to, uh, as this is the case, and, and there is, of course, Cases, as you mentioned, where where the businesses are paid before, and that's that don't show up in in screens, for example, maybe. So, I mean, is that a is that a fertile ground f- to look for in, in possible investments? You think? I do. I do. I think that that um, you know businesses that have negative networking capital that have kind of float characteristics. That's a really powerful thing. Can be a really powerful thing. So, you know, and and with that often come other attractive attributes, right? So businesses that. First of all, being paid in advance like that is a signal of competitive position, right? And um, it often comes with a subscription type business model, which, for a whole variety of reasons, is a you know is an attractive, attractive thing. And so, if you've got you know negative working capital, a subscription business model with low churn, yeah, wow, interesting, potentially, potentially, yeah. Another potential way to create shareholder value is through M&A. And all of the outsider CEOs in the book, they really did big acquisitions of at least 25% of their market cap and some a lot more. And this was really an important part of their growth strategy for the companies. And at the same time in the book, you also cite some studies showing that two thirds of acquisitions actually destroy shareholder value. So have you done more work on this and what is your take on the subject now? 
Yeah, let's see. Well, I, I would say so in the the investing that I'm doing now, some a, a meaningful chunk of that, really the you know in the search fund uh, ecosystem in particular, the focus there is organic growth, and so a lot of those companies are pure organic growers. Inorganic growth, going through acquisition, is sort of a different animal. And all of you're, you're absolutely right. All of the companies in the book um, created a lot of value through acquisition. Um, and that is very unusual in public companies. You know, the record, you know, you could, depends on what study you cite, but somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of all acquisitions, you know, um, destroy value. Um, and the pattern for the CEOs in the book generally, with one notable exception, was um, occasional large acquisitions added most of the value. So sort of this idea that they were sort of like concentrated portfolio public company investors. They waited until they saw something that they thought was overwhelmingly compelling, where they sort of knew they could they could improve the operations, typically through cost side improvements, and then they would take a large bite when that was possible. And the ABC acquisition, A, that you cited earlier, is the most dramatic example in the book because that acquisition was literally over 100% of the enterprise value of capital cities. But they absolutely knew they could improve the margins in the core TV stations, which was the lion's share of the cash flow in the first 24 months. And they you know, they were able to take 2,000 basis points of cost out of those businesses very quickly. And that was, you know, that, that was the underlying logic. Everything else they did was sort of gravy on top of that. Interestingly, in the investing I'm doing now in private companies, the pattern is more like the TCI pattern. So TCI is the one company in the book that had a different pattern, which was lots of little acquisitions. Very much like, say, Mark Leonard at Constellation Software. Um, and that, that is a, that's a pattern that's closer to the pattern I've seen work in smaller recurring revenue private companies, where lots, lots of little acquisitions can, uh, you know, can create a lot of value if they meet certain criteria. And if so, so the, the patterns are, can be, but that is for sure that was the pattern in the book. Yeah, and I mean, the, the the feeling I have is that these uh, large uh, bet the company deals are are um, most often maybe not value creating, but but in these cases it was clear exception to that. And do you think actually do you think I'm right generally, or uh, and that this is special cases, or or can we learn something from these big big deals? I think well, you're I think you're absolutely generally right. Uh, on that, I mean, no, no question about it. And um, it, that that is the maybe the most interesting departure for for this group versus their peer group was their track record on large acquisitions was just exceptional. It, but it was because they had this lens of they were only going to do super compelling things. It's this idea they kept their hurdle rate very high, even on large acquisitions. The tendency, I think, in corporate America is with a larger acquisition, you know, because larger companies tend to trade at higher multiples, is to lower your hurdle rate. And and they did not do that. They kept their hurdle rates high. Their hurdle rates were generally, you know, in the twenties percent, um, you know, low to low to mid twenties IRR thresholds, often over ten year holding periods. Um, they would run run longer term models. They'd run them, you know, with and without leverage to understand the components of IRR. So they spent. They spent a lot of, you know, they, they, these were high conviction, you know, high conviction, uh, you know, investments. Another thing that is often viewed as a negative, in, in my opinion, is uh, issuance of shares to to acquire companies. But what can we learn from from Henry Singleton in, in this aspect? Yeah, there are actually in the book, I think there are three examples. So, um Share repurchases can certainly add a lot of value if they're done in a in a way that focuses on you know purchases made at meaningful discounts to intrinsic value, and that's the pattern for lots of the, most of the companies in the book. But um, share issuances can also add a lot of value again if they're done at a valuation that is sufficiently high, you know, so that the currency and and there so the the examples in the book are Henry Singleton, who um, did 130 acquisitions in a nine-year period of time, all of them with stock. And the PEs for the Teledyne stock over that period of time ranged from sort of the mid-20s to as high as, you know, 50. When he repurchased his shares, which he then did in the sort of ensuing 12 years, he bought in 
you know, the vast majority of the company's stock. He bought them in at single digit multiples, single digit PE multiples, right? So, but he, the issuances were a key part of the value creation. The other two examples are um, Nick Chabraha, Ender's successor at General Dynamics, bought the Gulfstream business jet business, the largest acquisition in General Dynamics history as a percentage of enterprise value. And he did, the, he did, he did it as a stock deal. Um, and the stock was trading at an all-time high multiple, all-time high PE, um, literally, you know, close to double its long-term average. And so, you know, he, he believed that was an attractive currency to use for that acquisition. Um, and the other example of all places is Buffett's acquisition of Gen Re, which at the time was the largest acquisition Berkshire had ever done, again, as a percentage of enterprise value. Um, and he did it all with stock. Buffett, of course, famously, you know, disdains stock deals, but that deal occurred in 1998. And if you look at the Berkshire Hathaway long-term price to book value chart, it looks a little bit like Mount Fuji. And the absolute apex is the, you know, the middle of 1998, we're traded at three times book value. And he, he just sort of, he knew that he had an attractive currency and he actively used it to, to consummate a, a large deal. And now we touched upon the people aspect. We talked about the business and the financials. And if we go into a bit more of the aspects from an investor side, hunting for these outsider CEOs is really a big challenge. And I think it requires a lot of curiosity, which you show. I mean, it took you eight years to write the book, right? It was a big job behind this. So where do you start to find these uh, outsider CEOs? Yeah, let's see. Well, so I think I think it takes a long time to be able to sort of definitively make the call um, on a CEO as a you know as a capital allocator. I think some it's around a decade before you really know, um, and that's you know enough time so you can view the actions taken, acquisitions, repurchases, special dividends, whatever, and sort of put them in the context of you know how they've how they've performed performed relative to expectations. Um, so that's a long time before you can sort of have enough data to really feel that you've, you've, you can confidently make the call. Um, before that, I think you do get lots of signals, you know, hints, markers, um, and a lot of them come from, you know, the, the vocabulary they use, the actual word choice. Um, how do they talk about what, what are the things they emphasize in their shareholder letters, you know, in, in their investor communications generally, if they have an investor day, um, they get extra credit if they're expressing things in per share terms, just being aware of the, you know, the, the importance of, of any decision, um, in terms of its impact on the value per share in terms of the overall number itself. Um, you get credit if you focus on, you know, the core cash economics. If you talk about, um, if you are calculating, you know, cash-based IRRs, you're talking about free cash flow generation, you're talking about unit economics. Um, if you're crisp and clear about the, the goals you have for new investments, whether it's a new plant or an acquisition or a, or a, or a large stock repurchase, if, you, if you're clear about what your goals are for what you think you can and then you and then you actually hit them this is what take, you know the, the, there's a whole there's just sort of a pattern um that that those things often fit in and so um i, I do think that's you know it, it's really signals that might guide your research you then need to do the work and spend time with the people and you know kind of track the results you know over time but um you, you know i do think there's some there are some uh, early early warning signals. Yeah. And how do you think about like the economics of the the sector, the the businesses? And we had uh, Sean Eddings uh, in our first episode of the podcast, who co-authored um, the Intelligent Fanatics book, which quite quite a lot resembles yeah, uh, great. Your, your book. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And uh, and there we find examples such as Herb Kellyher of uh, of Southwest West and uh, Ken Iverson of of Nucorp, which are not really in, in industry, industries that are deemed like like good industries. So how, how big of a factor is that when you search for, for an outsider CEO? Yeah, well, those are interesting cases. Like I would put, so um, 
So those are cases in both Iverson and Kelleher evolved different models to, to existing known difficult industries, right? So airline industry, just, you know, that's been a giant graveyard of, you know, shareholder value, you know, destruction over, over decades. Um, the steel manufacturing industry, I mean, brutally capital intensive, cyclical, unionized, you know, these are, these are just really hard businesses. And in each case, they evolved differentiated models that were funda- that fundamentally changed the economics, changed the unit economics. So, um, you know, the mini mill idea it just fundamentally changed the capital efficiency of a mill. Just, and, and, you know, the, the both the capex required to build one, the operating costs went. Both both of them evolved models that attacked unionization. Right, they created an environment where they, it, which gave them an immediate cost advantage because all of their peers were heavily unionized. You know, so they just sort of evolved. So that's a that's always interesting. I mean, two other examples that I often cite as you know examples of this kind of outsider thinking in the you know more broadly in, in companies that aren't in the book is Credit Acceptance Corp which has an unbelievable 25 year record in the subprime auto loan business. I mean, talk about a difficult, hard business, but they've evolved a very different model. And then around that, they are excellent in how they allocate capital, specifically repurchasing their shares. And the other one is NVR, which is a home building company, which has evolved a total, which is home building is a very asset intensive business obviously cyclical, you know, it's, it's been very difficult as a, as an industry, but they evolved a unique asset light approach to home building. Um, you know, and so they, they just fundamentally, it's, a, it's almost like they're playing a different game. So I, I think there's sort of a sub genre of kind of industry reinvention, but in every case, those are, look at the, the cash economics. They're, they're creating a new model. That's all about, cash unit economics and IRR, IRR math. Um, so yeah, those are interesting examples. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. That was really interesting. And, uh, I mean, you seem to favor companies who, who don't speak with wall street as well. Um, and I'm just curious to know if, if you are, I mean, do you always speak with management teams before making an investment or, um, yes, is the short answer. And, and, but I say that in that, um, I actually prefer management teams that are stingy in the time they allocate to investor relations. So you have to sort of earn the right to talk to those teams. You know, this was true of the, you know, the process we had to go through to speak to the CEOs in the book, even though they were retired as a group, they were famously reclusive. And the way we were able to, to, to get to them um, was we did an enormous amount of upfront work and we then shared that work with them in the form of a, you know, a deck a slide deck. And in every case, that was the key to those conversations. It led to substantive conversations. And it's the same with, I think other management teams, you know, you, you need to sort of earn, earn their trust and earn their respect. And if you do the work, they generally want to talk about it. And you're not worried about, you know, next quarter's earnings or next year's earnings. You're interested in sort of a more fundamental conversation around their business and a, longer term, you know, longer term outlook, they often enjoy those conversations in my experience. No. Was there any of those conversations that stood out to you when you did the book? Oh, in the book. Spoke to Munger and Buffett and everyone. Yeah. I mean, um, we were really fortunate and we had a lot of, you know, really fun conversations, but probably the one that stuck out to me the most was I, I had a chance to sit down twice with John Malone um, in both times in Denver. And um, those were amazing conversations. You know, we, we got into real depth and he, first of all, he's, he's brilliant, but he's also, he's, he's got a wonderful sense of humor. He, um, but he, he doesn't like the spotlight. It's not his, it's not his thing. And so it was wonderful to spend time with him and to go into detail on a bunch of the, sort of key decisions at critical junctures in, in, you know, TCI's history. Um, but, um, most people thought that we'd never be able to sit down with him, but actually he was, 
he, he really, he, he was excited. We had a second, you know, a chance to have a second meeting with him. So it was really fun. And for us who, who won't be able to meet uh, John Malone, I, th- I think Cable Cowboys is a, is a great book for that. Something we should go through in, in a different podcast. maybe. Very good book. That's a very good book. Yep. And we touched upon some of the companies that are outstanding in your opinion, but do you dare mention any, any other examples of uh, companies that you think could qualify into a new updated version of The Outsiders in, say, 20 years? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there we've, we've hit on some of them already. Um, of course, Danaher has just an unbelievable record over many, many years under the rails and is fascinating for sort of the, the series of transformations it's made. Very hard to do that over time. Um, there's a fascinating sort of capital allocation story unfolding in real time at the moment in um, in a company called Process, which is based in the Netherlands, which is a spinoff from Naspers, the South African company. And it it's the entity that holds their investment in Tencent, along with a lot of other really interesting digital assets. And they're doing some really interesting things to shrink their discount from net asset value and putting some repurchases. That's a kind of a live one that I think is interesting to, to maybe for your listeners to dive in on now uh, a little bit, just because it's unfolding in real time. You know, there's a reinsurer in the U.S. called Arch Re that's done a remarkable job creating value very quietly over a, over a long period of time. The, I don't know if this qualifies yet, but the most radical, since the book came out, um, business that has reached out you know, because they've been um, processing and implementing some of the ideas from the book is a company called RCI Hospitality, which is in of all things, it's in the um, I don't know what, I don't know the delicate way to describe the industry for your, it's in a it's in a um, it's in a niche in the hospitality industry. Let's leave it at that. Um, but they are they're doing some interesting things, focusing on repurchasing their shares and unit economics. And um, I'm, I'm sort of inter- watching that from the sidelines, you know, with, with interest, but um, no, I mean, there, and, and of course um, there are tons of these longer term hold codes that are, that are amazing. I mean, Constellation is amazing. Brookfield is amazing. I mean, a bunch of the serial acquirers that you guys cover have excellent long-term records. I think that's a really interesting still nascent it's it that's really feeling to me like it's a it's a it's a a movement in its early early stages this sort of long-term hold co serial acquirer areas there's lots of um, lots of energy around that here in the here in the u.s and i think uh, more broadly internationally it's it's funny that you mentioned that because we had a a theme event here at at red eye um where frederick carlson who who was the ceo of lifco Mm -hmm. a serial acquirer in sweden presented and he said that if you look at Lifco and compare that with Teledyne, you will see a lot of similarities in the early days. We will see if, if I mean, now it's it's really there at the at the P of fifties, but but we will see if it goes down to to P of, of ten or something, and they will start to buy back shares because then I think it will be really really similar. Yeah, interesting. Um, Talking about, I mean, coming up on the decade of, of your book, you made actually a prediction in the book that large technology companies such as Microsoft, Dell, and, and Cisco should move from allocating a lot of cash uh, to R&D to instead buy back shares um, as they trade at single-digit P multiples and, and have enormous cash balances. Now, as I said, 10 years later, how did it go? Yeah, it's I mean, I think um, Microsoft has clearly done that, right? I think, you know, it's there's really that's a fascinating story i think you know it's um the the current ceo has just done an outstanding job capital allocation wise he's created a lot of value for shareholders um the others let's you know think the jury is is still out on how those have panned out i'm I'm, but i am intrigued by the sort of you know the fang group of companies i think actually is getting pretty pretty good marks so far for their capital allocation decision-making. I think they're doing a much better job of this than the predecessor, you know, kind of tech, tech companies, uh, that, that were mentioned, you know, mentioned in that, uh, that sidebar in the book. So can, can you, can you give us an updated prediction? Maybe, maybe you made that. Updated prediction. Um, 
Let's see. Um, I mean, I think what's interesting is I, I'm very, I'm intrigued by, um, I think there are a number of markets outside of North America that are sort of awaiting their Henry Singleton, right? I think there's, there are a number of markets where, and, you know, Japan would for sure be an example of this, where I think if, if there's a company that dramatically departs from conventions around capital allocation generally, maybe share repurchases specifically, and the market recognizes that, um, I think it could lead to, you know, interesting broader trends in some of those countries. So I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's fun to watch, you know, some of these things begin to take hold in geographies outside the U S and, you know, I think 10 years from now, there'll be, there'll be a number of sort of, um, you know, national Henry Singleton exemplar types who've emerged. So that, that'll, that'll be fun to watch. And we touched a little bit upon valuation there, but we haven't spoken that much about how you, what your approach is when it comes to valuation of these exceptional companies. I mean, there should be a premium, but how much are you willing to pay and how are you thinking about it? Yeah, the way, I mean, um, the way we think about it, um, and this is, you know, at Sun Mountain where I'm involved is we're looking for, you know, 20 year, 20 plus percent IRRs. That's a very, very high bar, you know, and so it's sort of the, it's the persistence of the, of the growth, either organically or inorganically. That's the key variable for us. Um, that's the key driver of really long-term returns. And um, so we're focused on finding companies that sort of, where we can, where we can have conviction around that. Uh, and the reality is if you have conviction around that, you have some valuation leeway typically, right? Meaning, um, I mean, you guys have probably seen some of these studies, but you know, um, Nicholas sleep did an excellent study of the 40 year returns at Walmart and you know, what you could have paid at the IPO to get a 40 year, 10% return. If you, if you have conviction around that sort of growth, you, you generally have some flexibility in what you can pay. So I, you know, I'm, I'm always looking at, you know, um, the multiple paid relative to the long-term, you know, the, the long-term growth rate. Um, you know, the simple math is sort of, if you take the free cash flow yield plus the long-term growth rate in free cash flow, um, you know, that's your unlevered IRR pretty simply, right? So we're, you know, we're trying to find things where we can, you know, and, and our companies do tend to use leverage and, you know, so that, that changes the equation. So, um, so it's, I don't have a, in, in the private company world, we're generally paying, you know, mid to high single digit multiples of you know, enterprise value to EBITDA multiples. And for a lot of our companies, EBITDA is pretty close to free cash flow. Um, but in the public, public markets it's sort of it's it's a bit case dependent honestly yeah we touched upon this uh, topic with mark mahaney that we talked about in the last episode with his book nothing but net where he has uh, studied these fan companies and other the big tech in, in the u.s and he was putting a lot of focus on just this premium growth that they can have 20 plus percent revenue growth consistently over time from a big base like billions of dollars in revenues so but it's really the, the hard question is to know how, how consistent is that and how, how do you evaluate like the, the runway for growth and how sustainable that is? Well, let's see. So it's easiest to have conviction around organic growth in markets that have markets that have long-term secular growth characteristics, right? So I think you, you're generally in terms of the, the places to look, you want to be looking in growing markets and then you want to, you know, then you want to find companies that have, Kind of differentiated market positions within those markets and then you want you know management teams that are laser beams um and you know you, you we are generally looking for in addition to the growth we you know we sort of also want the revenue quality and the capital efficiency All right and so that makes us that that's you know, those are three pretty tight filters layered on top of one another so that leads to you know, a highly, you know, highly concentrated portfolio typically. So, but the growth piece is, that's a critical piece for sure. Yep. 
And besides finding these great companies and great management and having your own strategy, as investors, we also need to deal with our own minds. So we are curious what, what your most common biases are. Probably have a, um, probably have a, an overly strong bias for really long holding periods. You know, I mean, it's by default, you know, for across so many of the things I'm doing and, you know, probably at the margin, that's something to be conscious of, you know, sort of the, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, that, that, that isn't suited to every case, every industry, every company. Um, so I think that's a, if I'm being self-aware, that's a, that's a reality. Um, you know. Does that mean that you hold on to companies for a bit too long and not sell them in time or, or what's the consequences of that? Do you think? Yeah, I think it's sort of still playing out. I mean, what I can tell you is more often than not in my investing career to date, I have sold too soon. Like I've done a bunch of work around that, meaning the companies I sold and it's very, you know, very, very similar, as I mentioned earlier, to, to Rob, Rob Small's experience, where when I sold companies, either because I had to in a prior life, you know, due to fund life restrictions, uh, or just because prices were really, really high, those generally were poor decisions, you know. So I think when you have a company that you, you that really does check all those boxes, you know, where you're, you're in a market that has those characteristics, the company has performed well, you really like the CEO, you know, the economic characteristics are, you know, first rate kind of across the key criteria. Um, you just want to be, you know, disproportionately, surprisingly good things tend to happen to great companies. Did you have more biases that you wanted to bring up? I mean, I'm sure I have lots of biases, but I'm not, I, I'm not, they're not coming to mind. I need to get, pull out my Cialdini and go through and, uh, yeah, I'm sure I have all sorts of biases, but I, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not going, I don't have the, the list, the taxonomy in front of me. I was thinking about the, the liking tendency bias, because I mean, um, some traits, traits that you found among these outsider CEOs are that they are humble, hardworking, patient, and so on. And these are traits that are often found, found, found in great investors such as yourself. So um, I don't know about that, or, or maybe it was just pure, pure logic that you found these, these outside the CEOs. What do you think? Yeah, there, there might be something to that. Yeah, there might be something to that. So after reading your book, uh, what else do you recommend we read to improve our odds of finding and holding on to companies run by these outsiders? Okay, that's a good question. Um... Let's see. So Sam Walton's book is outstanding. Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog, is outstanding. I'm sure you guys have covered covered those already, but those are those are really great books. Um, so I, I think the whole concentrated portfolio area is interesting. So there's a interesting book called Fortune's Formula by William Poundstone. That's really about the Kelly criterion. That's interesting. Um, I would recommend um, John Train's Money Masters. The original book I read is still a good read. Um, came out in 1980, but it's still, still I think, holds up nicely. Um, I think Roger Lowenstein's Buffett biography is outstanding. Um, uh, Snowball is good too, but the Lowenstein book is really, really terrific. I think Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius is a terrific book. Um, fun, interesting book to read. Um, you know, I think it's hard to improve on really great annual letters, collections of annual letters. So I, you know, I'd read everything obviously Buffett has ever written going back to the Buffett partnership. Um, Mark Leonard is amazing. Brett Roberts at credit acceptance writes great letters. Um, as so I sort of focus on, I think that's a, you know, the reading uh, Jeff Bezos's letters chronologically is a fascinating thing to do. Let's see. I'm looking around my office here. You know, the um, unconcentrated portfolio is the Warren Buffett portfolio. is a is a really is a really good book. Um, and uh, you know, one of one of several bad talented author. Um, and you know, Phil Fisher. I mean, first principles, right? These are things that you know. So, fantastic books. And what are you reading these days? Um, you know, at the moment, I am reading uh, a book 
on the guy who discovered the um, the uh, the Higgs boson. I can see the name of it right now. So it's totally unrelated to um, to business. Um, it's called yeah, it's called elusive, uh, and I'm I'm fairly early in it, but it's interesting. So yeah, I'm off the reservation business wise. Um, Sometimes you can find interesting uh, connections in those books where you where you don't expect them. Definitely, that's definitely the case, at least for me. Will Thorndike, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Investing by the Books podcast to talk about you, your investment philosophy, and your great book, The Outsiders. Do you have something more you want to add before we finish up here? I don't, but I've enjoyed the time very much. Thank you guys for having me on. And lastly, where can our audience follow you and your work? <laughs> that's a good question. I don't really have a Twitter account. Um, so I think probably the best way we, you know, this new podcast, 50X, we have a website and some related, that's probably the easiest way to, to follow what I'm up to or get it, or get in contact with me. I'd love to hear from any of your listeners, um, you know, any, any time and, um, and uh, talk so Mika. This was great. Talk so Mika. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.